Good afternoon and a lovely warm welcome. It's a nice bright sunny day and it's nice and cosy warm in here. So welcome this afternoon. I see a couple of new faces in here so welcome on behalf of Brahma Kumaris. My name is Linda and I am based in Brighton and Hove and I coordinate the activities of the Brahma Kumaris in this area. And uh, this afternoon we have the topic of the how and why of taking risks. The how and why of taking risks. So it's quite a risky topic really to take up this afternoon. We were wondering whether Brighton was, uh, the Brighton folk were game for risk taking. So some of you are, so that's great because this afternoon we're going to learn how to take more risks. So you may end up by the end of the afternoon being able to ride on an elephant going across a tightrope, just like the picture. But you may, you may not feel inspired to do that, but you may end up riding this elephant across a tightrope. So this afternoon our speaker is Jeff Marlowe, and Jeff is a very eloquent speaker. He's very uh, in, in, in interesting in the way he involves everybody in, in, in what he shares and he comes from a business background so uh, being in business nowadays is quite a risky thing so I'm sure he'll share some of his personal risk-taking episodes in his life. So Jeff is based in Cambridge and he's come down especially this afternoon to be with everybody. So I'd like to invite him to come onto the stage, our little stage. So Jeff will speak for about 45, 50 minutes, depending, and then we uh, will do what we normally do, which is get into little groups and create some questions. So uh, the floor is yours, young man. Thank you, young lady. So welcome, everyone. I actually feel, I don't feel quite so alien in Brighton as I do in some other towns because my son studied at Brighton University a few years ago, did his architecture degree here and so I'm kind of a little bit familiar with the, the environs and I've known Linda for 20 odd years. So um, this term risk and risk taking, as Linda mentioned of course, you know, businesses have this attitude that if you don't get any, you know, if you don't have any risk, if you don't take on any risk, you don't get any return. Uh, but I think it's also true in general in life. And there's a rather nice quote from Helen Keller, who was the first blind deaf person ever to get a university degree. And she said that um, when it comes to this idea of, of risk, that life is either a daring adventure or it is nothing. It's either a daring adventure or it's nothing. And... If you couple that up with an understanding of where the word risk comes from, and you have to dig around a little bit because even the Greeks used to use a term that sounds like risk, and then that became part of Latin and then worked its way through you know, more European languages, Italian, German, uh, and French, and then ends up in the English language. But the actual word risk itself comes from the same root as the word rhizome, which is maybe not as common a word as risk, but any gardeners here this afternoon? So if you're a gardener, you'll know that basically a rhizome is a root. It's a root structure of something. And the reason that that became this word risk was the idea that if you're sailing your boat and there is either some root structure or some other grounded object under the surface, then there is a risk that you will run aground and you'll get a hole in the bottom of your boat and holes in the bottom of boats 
and not a good idea. Actually, it's probably relevant being here in Brighton because you are on the seafront here. So if you go out on a boat, you don't want it to hit anything and get a hole and sink. So this is the idea of risk, is that there might be something hidden under the surface that could cause damage and loss. And so you know, if we're going to take risks in our lives, then, well, which risks should we take and why should we take them? Now, I already said that in the world of business that the idea is that there's no return without taking a risk. Uh, and the other way that that might be expressed is that you have to speculate in order to accumulate. But unless you do something that is not necessarily 100% guaranteed to work, then chances are you're not going to grow, you're not going to profit in that way. And, and that's true also of life, is that unless we stretch ourselves, unless we push the boundaries, then we won't grow and we won't become more than we have started off at. So which risks should we take? You know, well, what, are the, what are the reasons why we should take risks? Well, you know, risks around growth, fair enough, but quite a lot of people take risks for other reasons, like the thrill. Right? I don't know if you've been on a roller coaster ride. Do have roller coasters? Do you have a theme park around here at all with roller coasters on? So, you know, the, the, the idea of being on a ride that's feels scary. I mean, you hope it's safe, but, you know, we've seen in the last year or so people coming off these rides, um, losing legs and people getting killed. But the whole idea of going on something like that is that you get scared, and in getting scared, the body releases adrenaline, and the adrenaline rush is a, <gasps> it's the kind of thing that people will seek. You know, the body produces its own natural chemicals, and one of the reasons people run so much is because it in releases endorphins and you know you become addicted to the endorphins and find that you can't go running or you know you can't stop running because you need to go in order to get that rush that feeling of of of, of that that chemical flowing through the body so people will bungee jump people will skydive people will do all sorts of things that you know saying a more normal person might look upon and say, why the hell would you ever do that? You know, I mean, why would anyone jump out of an aeroplane? I mean, there's perfectly good runways for planes to land on and steps for you to climb down. Why would you jump out at whatever, 10,000 feet or so? Uh, and of course, it's because of the thrill, because of the excitement. But like many of these drugs, whether they're externally administered drugs or internally triggered drugs, it becomes sort of, you become tolerance to them. You know, the, the thrill that really made you feel excited last year is kind of this year it's a bit, mm, you know, maybe yeah, you need a bigger thrill and a bigger thrill. So you have to jump off something crazier or go across a tightrope while riding an elephant on a bicycle or, you know, some sort of thing you have to do in order to get that feeling of the risk that then generates the experience. So I counsel against that, um, that kind of risk-taking. I mean, I think it, all it does is it, is it sort of self-perpetuates. You know, you end up needing more of the same risk in order to feel the same amount of excitement. And eventually, you know, the human body only has so much capacity. You can only cope with so much before either it breaks down or you have an accident. Actually, this time last week, I was sitting at the side of my son's hospital bed in Merthyr Tydfil in Wales, having him having come off a mountain bike, um, herring along down some crazy path in the uh, bike park Wales, which is renowned for its slippery, slopey, you know, granite stuff. Uh, fortunately, the hospital is a big trauma centre because lots of people fall off bikes. In fact, the surgeon told me that they do between 100 and 150 operations on people a year who've fallen off bikes, and then they do a lot more of people who've fallen off hills because it's right in the middle of the Brecon Beacons. So people do these things and then result in a situation, as I say, with my son Alex, it's probably going to take him a good year to get back to being fully functional, 
um, jaw broken in three places, lost five teeth. So various kind of things that need to be done to rebuild him. But he'll be back at work tomorrow because his hands work, his legs work, and he, he works in design. So he's able to continue to do those things, even though he sounds a little bit like um, who was the guy who played the mafia boss in that uh, that movie? Is it Marlon Brando? You know, sound like cotton wool stuffed in his mouth. So most of his so Saint Linda, our stick blender, has been in overdrive this last week, mushing up all of his food so that he can actually eat things. So, you know, when we when we look at taking risks, I think we need to consider why are we taking the risk? You know, what's the what's the intention behind it? Is it the thrill seeking? Is it the excitement, or is there some kind of deeper reason why we choose to take risks in our lives? Um, you know, you could say that doing public speaking, coming up and sitting in front of a bunch of people, very few of whom you know, has a risk associated with it. Um, I've done it lots of times, but still, occasionally you come up and you have this feeling inside you of a bit of nervousness. How you deal with that, and you know why you're up here, and why why you want to speak in front of people in the first place. All of these things have a bearing on the risk that you're taking. Um, going along to a meditation centre. I remember the very first time I walked into the Brahma Kumari Centre in Cambridge, where I live. This was um, 20th of August 1990, so just over 25 years ago. And my wife, Alison, came along with me. The way I tell the story is that she came along to make sure that we weren't getting caught up in something we would regret. You know, you hear these stories, spaceships waiting for you and this kind of stuff. She tells the story differently, but she's not here today, so you get my version of the story. Um, and I think for a lot of my friends, you know, a lot of my friends and a lot of my work, uh, colleagues at work would have seen coming along to something with the name Spiritual University as being a very strange thing for someone with a background in physics and maths and engineering to be doing. But, you know, life sometimes create circumstances and situations that force us to take risks that at the time don't seem like risks they seem like the obvious thing to do and you know in my case I'd been to the I was off work with stress I'd been um, been to my local GP uh, he tried to reassure me by telling me that 80% of his patients were also suffering from stress um, unfortunately he didn't have any treatment for it so that was not very reassuring actually um, and then I got referred to a psychotherapist, a guy who ran the psychotherapy unit at Addenbrooke's, which is the university teaching hospital in Cambridge. Uh, he spent three hours one evening taking my life apart as a, as, a, as a private patient. My company's private medical insurance paid for me to go and see this guy. And you can imagine my expectation. You know, I'm kind of a science person. I go along to see this guy. I've been suggested to see him by my doctor. Uh, he's running the psychotherapy unit at Addenbrooke's, you know, the teaching hospital associated with Cambridge University, one of the top universities on the planet. Pretty big guy, pretty big institution, pretty big job. A lot of expectation that he would really be able to help and, and help me understand why I felt the way I did. Um, unfortunately, after this three-hour consultation, he just looked at me over those little half-glasses that they always seem to wear, these professional medical people, and he said, you should be happy. This was his considered diagnosis after three hours of consultation, was, you should be happy. Um, I'm sure what he meant was, look, I can't find any reason why you can't be happy. I can't find any terrible trauma or reason why it's not possible for you to be happy. Unfortunately, in my state of mind, what I heard was, ooh, beats me what you've got. And since I tried every other avenue and was now with a world's expert in the field of what goes on in the human mind, and he said, beats me, mate, I can't help you, I left there that evening with twice the stress 
that I arrived with, which I'm sure wasn't his intention and it certainly wasn't mine. So I think that sometimes though, these things happen in order for you to do something which might otherwise feel like too big a risk, like wandering into the Brahmakumari Centre in Cambridge to learn about something called Raj Yoga Meditation. And we went along, not because of the meditation, but because of this word yoga in the middle here. You see, my, my mother-in-law, who sadly passed away back end of uh, 2014, no, 2013, she said to my wife, Alison, she said, why don't you take Jeff to go and do some yoga? Because she'd gone to do yoga because she suffered from arthritis. And she knew that when people relaxed with all the stretching and everything, that then they would very often... <coughs> You know, not off at the back of the class because they were so relaxed and I wasn't sleeping. I was waking up at four o'clock in the morning thinking about life, the universe and everything. And then by the time I got out of bed at seven in the morning, I'd be burnt out already. I'd done a whole day's worth of thinking. But uh, I came across some writings back then that said most people live their lives three times. Is they lie in bed in the morning worrying about what's going to happen during the day. Then they get up and they go through their day, and then they lie in bed in the evening worrying about what happened during the day. So you get three shots at this, this worrying about life. So this was the reason we went along, um, thinking that it would be relaxation. And, and as my wife booked the, the slot for us, she rang all of the different places doing yoga in Cambridge. And being a university town, most of the courses were not on over the summer vacation. And in Cambridge, that means right up until the end of September, you know, people don't come back to start the university terms till October. So she found this organisation called the Brahma Kumaris, rang the centre, booked an appointment to go round, and the final comment of the chap on the phone, Prashant, some of you will have met him, I know he's come down here, was, um, by the way, you do realise that this is yoga for the mind and not for the body. So what does that mean? You know? I mean, I didn't have any idea that there were lots of different types of yoga. Like most Westerners, if somebody said yoga to me, the, the image of a seven-stone Indian guy in a loincloth came to mind, you know, with his legs crossed over behind his head, that sort of thing, maybe sitting on some nails. So um, we went along, and actually that evening, a young lady called Kathy, who had been going to the centre there for two years, had about two years, she was the secretary, and um, I learned more from her than I learned from the guy who ran psychotherapy at Attenbrook's Cambridge University's teaching hospital which was certainly a surprise to me, and I'm sure would have been a terrible surprise to him if he'd ever got to hear about it. And it was a very simple thing that I learned that day and came away with, and it really started a whole series of investigations, mostly of myself, to get to the bottom of who am I and what is it that I really want. Because I think this is where we come to this issue of useful risk, is... If you're risking in order to develop something or to gain something that you really want, that's really important to you, that's an entirely different game to risking something simply for the thrill or for some other motive. So um, Alison, my wife, as I say, came along with me, and she had extremely powerful experiences in the meditation that we did. My meditation was awful. Uh, it took me years and years and years to get past thinking about meditating. Um, some of you may have met Daddy Janki, who's the administrative head of the Brahma Kumaris, and she's 9,900 years old now. She's still travelling around a bit. And I always remember her. She used to give these classes where she would say, you Westerners think too much. This is a big problem in the West, is you think too much. And I would kind of go, well, hmm, I think about that. 
What does she mean by that? I have to think about that. I mean, nowadays, I don't think I would do that. I think I'd probably go online and Google, look for YouTube videos on um, thinking too much and buy the book on thinking too much. And so, so this idea of thinking too much, what does that mean? Because you, know, you imagine someone who was trained in mathematics, physics, and engineering. You know, it's all about thinking. And, and I think this is a, in a way, it's a, um, I don't say illness. It's kind of like an illness. It's, a, it's an imbalance. Maybe that's the better word. It's an imbalance in Western society that has been there since the, since the late 17th century, really. Um, two key figures, I think, that we can point our fingers at and say they were instrumental in us thinking, starting to think too much. Um, one of them was um, Isaac Newton, who was in Cambridge, which is where I come from, so I'm not going to blame him. And the other one was René Descartes, who was French, so I'm definitely going to blame him. And, of course, Descartes' famous statement was, I think, therefore I am. Cogito ergo sum. You know, I think, therefore I exist. And once you get that notion that I think, therefore I exist, what you're doing is you're starting to identify with thinking. You're starting to say that actually what makes me who I am is my thoughts and my ability to think. And then move the clock forward 300 years to the times that we're in now where in your pocket you probably have something that looks vaguely similar to this, which has, depending on the calculations that you do, somewhere between 100,000 and 1 million times the processing power of the computer that landed man on the moon in 1969, and your mobile phone company gives you this for free. I mean, just see that how much we've progressed technologically by the application of this ability to think. And, uh, you know, in the last, what would that be, 45 years, 46 years? No, 100,000 to a million times more powerful than the most powerful computer that they could stick on the lunar lander um, to put man on the moon. And it's, and it's understandable why we continue to be so impressed with this ability to think things through and to analyse them. Um, there's a saying that when you're proud of your hammer, everything looks like a nail. And because we've become so proud of this ability to analyse, to conceptualise, to take things apart, put them back together again, or certainly to take them apart, when I started to the reason I ended up in engineering, actually, I think, was because as a kid I used to take things apart at home, like the, the old clock on the mantel shelf that had been in the family for 100 years, and the vacuum cleaner, and I found that actually it was easier to take things apart than it was to put them back together again, and I often got a clout round the ears from my father for having dismantled something and not being able to fix it again. I think one of the reasons I did engineering was because I thought maybe it would teach me how to put things back together as well as, as, well as take them apart. But this ability to think, this ability to analyse, this ability to dissect, to categorise, to quantify, is something that we, can, we almost use it without thinking about it. it it's, it's promoted far more than anything else in our education system. I um, don't know if any of, you, any of you ever watch videos on the TED website. Yeah? I mean, there's a fabulous video on that. I think it's, it's in the top ten of the most watched videos on TED, and it's by a guy called Ken Robinson, so Ken Robinson, and it's called Why Schools Kill Creativity. Fabulous, uh, very entertaining, I mean, I don't know if you're anything like me, when I was a kid we had four TV, well three TV channels, um, and then four later, and then it was like, there was always something you wanted to watch. Now we've got um, Sky and 
cable and about 250 channels, and there's never anything on that you want to watch, is there? You know, despite having 80 times as many channels. But Ted, brilliant, you know, 20 minutes, really insightful stuff, and he talks about why it is that schools kill creativity. And a lot of it is to do with this dominance of, of being up here and a bit to this side. You know? Certainly in um, you know, the evaluation of success in education, it's the people who do best in education, the ones who end up sort of up here. And he talks about university professors as living up here and slightly to the left. And that, you know, that's, you know, that the education system is really geared up to produce university professors. And that whilst they're actually, you know, a fairly you know, useful life form, they're not necessarily to be held up as the pinnacle of human achievement. You know, there are other things that matter in life as well. So all of these influences tend to make us go for this sort of analytical approach to life. And yet there's a whole other side to ourselves, which is a side to ourselves that is the, the, the left brain would like to call the right brain because it likes to characterize things in that way. But you can call it your heart, your intuition, your, your deeper self, I mean, your innate wisdom. See this word wisdom at the top here. Now, that kind of knowing, there's a knowingness inside us all which comes from that side of the self. And um, this isn't, you know, I don't want you to think this is really sort of like fluffy, spiritual, woo-woo stuff that's got nothing to do with the real world. I mean, I actually have on here, am I? 100,000 times as powerful as the Apollo computer here. See if I can just find it for you. A little, there's a little, um, little audio clip I just want to play. It's only 20 seconds long. I just want to play to you. And um, this is by somebody who is not at all what you would think of as woo-woo. See if you recognize the voice. Your time is limited, so don't waste it living someone else's life. Don't be trapped by dogma, which is living with the results of other people's thinking. Don't let the noise of others' opinions drown out your own inner voice. And most important, have the courage to follow your heart and intuition. They somehow already know what you truly want to become. Everything else is secondary. So that was Steve Jobs, voted CEO of the decade about uh, 15 years ago, and founder of Apple, and then Apple iPhones, and Apple computers. So, you know, follow your heart. Don't follow other people's thinking. Follow your heart and intuition. Somehow they already know what you want to become. But it's risky doing that, isn't it? It's a lot easier to fit in with what everybody else wants you to do. Um, I was reading something on the train coming down, and someone was describing how hard it was to be themselves, particularly growing up in America, you know, where there was so much reinforcement of, their, of, the, of the way that you were supposed to be, you know, the... The, even if you were rebelling, you had to rebel in the same way that everyone else was rebelling. You know? And she, she was saying that um, she read something where someone had said, well, that's because you know, you know what USA stands for. It's the United States of Advertising. You know, and the advertising tells you how you're supposed to be and what you're supposed to be doing. Um, 50 years ago, actually, it was about a month ago, it was the 50th anniversary of, I think, one of the really insightful pop songs of the time that, uh, that really nailed this. Um, Satisfaction by the Rolling Stones. And there's this line in it where he says, uh, I'm watching my TV and a man comes on and tells me how white my shirt could be. But he can't be a man because he doesn't smoke the same cigarettes as me. No? Advertising. The advertising of you're supposed to have your shirts like this. 
And by the way, if you really want to be a man, you have to smoke this brand of cigarettes, not this brand of cigarettes. You know, that whole kind of reinforcement that we get in our society, of which advertising is probably the most, most powerful example. Telling you, you want to be like this, you should be like this, you should conform. You've got the education system saying, you should be like this, you should be good at this stuff that's up here and slightly to the left. In Ken Robinson's video, he tells the story of um, someone called Gillian Lynn, who uh, in, her, in her youth, maybe around the age of eight or nine, um, couldn't sit still at school and was always fidgeting around. And so the school arranged for her parents, her mother, to see a specialist with her. And they met the specialist, and he sort of chatted with the mother and watched what Gillian was doing and everything. And he said to Gillian, he said, well, I just need to leave the room and talk with your mother in private for a moment. And as he went out of the room, he turned the radio on. When the mother and he got outside, he said to the mother, just look. And they looked back in, and she was out of her seat dancing. And so he said to the mother, Gillian isn't sick, she's a dancer. Take her to dance school. And she did, so she went to dance school, and Gillian said it was amazing, you know, we learned all these different styles of dance. And eventually she ended up becoming um, a ballerina. She was prima ballerina at the Royal Opera House in London, and runs her own um, dance school, and became a choreographer, a multimillionaireess, all because somebody early on in her life saw that she was a dancer. And he said the real thing about this story is that today she would be diagnosed with ADHD and prescribed Ritalin and told to calm down. Yeah. He met her because he used to be on the board of the Royal Opera House. So, um, so this, is what, this is what we're dealing with. We're dealing with taking the risk to be different when everybody around you is telling you to be the same and everyone around you in your education system is saying this is what you have to turn out like. Yeah. My own experience of this was... was it's only something I really became clear about about two or three years ago, that I went to the junior school I went to in Coventry, where I grew up. Um, it was called Annie Osborne, and it was just down the road from where I lived. But at the time, it was one of the schools in the 1960s that was experimenting with something that, excuse me, at the time, was quite a novel idea in schooling, which was pupil-centric learning. And so the idea was that you should try and understand what the strengths and skills are of the pupils and to create the conditions around them for them to flourish, a bit like gardening. You know, you, certain plants flourish in the bright sunlight, other ones like the shade, some like soil that's wet, some like it dry, full sun, wind, etc. So the idea was that you create the conditions for the child to flourish and they will then become more effective. And this was wonderful for me. I really, really responded to this kind of treatment. And by the time I left there at the age of 11, I'd gone through all the stuff they could teach me in the curriculum. And I think for the last three months of the last term I was there, the headmaster had me doing things like putting up shelves in the school library because they'd run out of things that they could teach me. Um, I passed my 11 plus and went to the local grammar school. Now, this grammar school was entirely different its idea of what it was there for and, what, and its idea of what I was there for was entirely different to that pupil-centric model. It was, uh, we know how you should turn out, and our job is to turn you out in that shape. And if there's any bits of you that stick out, we're going to chop them off. And if there's any bits of you that don't quite fill the mould, we're going to cram you full of stuff so that you pack that bit out and you come out looking like we think you should. Now, my, that school... Um, it's called King Henry VIII School, Coventry, and it was founded by King Henry VIII. Well, actually, one of his ministers um, in um, 15, whenever it was, 1548. 
uh, with the mission of producing fine, upstanding Christian gentlemen. So they had their, their notion of what I should turn out like. And the whole approach, the whole relationship of the pupil to the school was fundamentally different to the one that I'd had when I was at junior school. When I went from there, I went to university, got my degree, worked at British Aerospace. Again, another firm that you can trace its roots back, not quite to King Henry VIII, but you know, a long time. Very traditional, roots in the British Army, whole kind of regimented, we do this this way, this is we know best, we form you in the way that we think is best. Um, and then I left there and went to the BBC, can you imagine, BBC Engineering, I mean even more kind of, you know, we know what the answer is. And then at the age of 24, left there to go to Cambridge and joined a company called Cambridge Consultants. And I used to describe, the first few years there, I used to describe it as literally like dying and going to heaven, because everyone was on first names, it's about 150, 200 people. The, the managing director was called Paul. I mean, you actually knew what he looked like because he had an open door policy. And their whole mo modus operandi was, we exist to create the conditions for you to flourish. Because if you flourish, you'll do great work. If you do great work, our clients will be happy with you, we'll grow, we'll be profitable. And so the whole thing, it was back to being like the experience I had at my junior school, where it was about helping me to grow and flourish. And it took quite a few years to get the old experience out of my system. This experience of, well, you know, what is the right answer? What am I supposed to be doing? What is it that you will value me for? And shifting that to something which was much more like, well, what is it that I really enjoy? What is it that I'm really here to do? What is it that I really feel is my you know, God-given talents? You know, what, what, how do I bring those out? How do I develop those? And that, I think, is where this issue of risk and taking the right kind of risks really comes to the fore because being different to other people feels risky. But if you're doing it because you genuinely believe that you're being yourself, that's far healthier than either not doing it because you're worried that you won't fit in. And it's certainly far healthier than being different just because you want to be different. And it can be quite challenging to, to know what is the difference. It can be quite challenging to discover inside yourself the clues that will tell you what is it that I'm supposed to be doing because it's not what we've been taught. You know, the things that tell you whether you're on track or not are things like, do you feel happy? You know? Do you feel contented? Do you feel fulfilled? You know, in what circumstances do you feel the most alive? What is it that rows your boat? What is it that lights your fire? Now we're sort of, in a way, we're, we're culturally discouraged from looking at, oh, can't, I can't, I didn't go down that pathway because, you know, if I do something that I really love and I really enjoy, well, what happens if it doesn't work out? Well, you know, I better just do a job like everybody else is doing and moan about the fact that I hate being at work. Now, there's so much cultural reinforcement for us. I think some of it, you know, maybe there's a church influence in there as well. You know, this idea of um, original sin and the notion that you know that we're supposed to be miserable somehow got attached to religion you know? um, which seems mighty bizarre to me personally I mean I used to go to church as a kid um, partly because my parents went and um, my uncle was a canon I used to say he never got fired but he was a canon in the Church of England and about uh, where are we now 2015 so about six seven years ago seven years ago we were burying him. It's okay, he was dead. And he was in this box, and it had my name on the, you know, Jeffrey Marlowe. 
So I was named after him. That's one of those ironies of life that um, he encouraged my parents to have another child because they'd got two daughters. And my Uncle Jeff said to my dad, um, Arthur, you've got to, you know, you've got to have a, a boy to carry on the Marlowe name. Not that we're any big family or whatever, but you, know, you need to carry on the line. And so I come along. And then two years later, he decided that actually he wasn't so sure about his vow of celibacy because there was this young lady he really liked and they got married and had two boys of their own. So it was kind of a bit of an irony around there. But it is a bit bizarre watching a coffin being lowered into the ground with your name on the top of it, Jeffrey Martin. It did say priest underneath it, which kind of gave it away. Um, so that was kind of a, quite a bizarre experience. So there's a lot of churchy sort of stuff in my background. You know? and, uh, but I could see, you know, I was thinking for myself and I could see by the age of 12, 13, 14, that when I went to church, you know, people were saying interesting sounding things, but they didn't seem to be putting them into practice. You know, there was a lot more talk than walk, a um, lot, lot more preaching and a lot less practice. And this all came to a head when I was about 14 and I was thinking, you know, do I really want to get out of a nice warm bed on a Sunday morning and go along to a freezing cold church and listen to all this stuff that sounds nice in theory, but I've not seen any evidence of it in practice. And it must have been as though there was kind of like a resonance with the universe because that day I witnessed one of the church wardens trying to proposition my mother. And I thought, nah, this isn't the right, you know. I mean, I kind of suspected God existed, but he didn't seem to have anything to do with St. Chad's Church, Wood End, Coventry. So that was kind of on the back burner. And in a way, that's kind of full circle to why it was I was stressed in the first place, you know, why it was I ended up in this strange place called the Brahmakumaris World Spiritual University in Cambridge to find out about Raj Yoga Meditation. It was this... So there was some need inside. There was a kind of a, you know, a, a, a kind of a, a lack of any attention being paid to my spirituality, and eventually things getting to the stage where that needed to be addressed, and it couldn't be addressed by this clever thinking. You know, it had to be addressed by something different, which was this much more exploratory process of trying to understand who am I, and what really matters to me as an individual. And it's different for each of us, you know, although we would understand that at the core of the self, you know, we all have the same qualities, peace, love, happiness, wisdom. Um, but that for each of us, where we've got in our life journey, there are certain ones of, of, of those qualities or attributes that are somehow more, seem more important to us um, because, you know, it feels like there's more of a, a gap because, because they're not there, you know, because, or at least they're there, but they're there in a kind of a, uh, a latent or a dormant state. They're not kind of emerged. They're merged within the self. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you know, for me, that's where this whole issue of risk comes in, you know, taking the risk to be who we are and doing it when we're still kind of learning who we are. It's a bit like a child learning to walk. You know, I often think that as an adult, if we were now told that we had to learn to walk and we'd never done it before, you know, we'd probably read lots of books about it and study leg geometry and eventually you know, get a qualification in walking. And then only when we got our PhD in walking would we actually get out of the chair and, and actually try doing it. And of course, the way you learn to walk is you try and do it, and you're not very good at it. You fall over. Same with meditation. Typically, for most people, you try and meditate, and actually, instead of meditating, you think about meditating, or you fall asleep, or you think about your shopping, or you think about you know all those things that you could be using the time 
to do rather than just sit there. Uh, the company I worked for in Cambridge years ago, they used to have these little cartoons in the meeting rooms, and one of them was this guy saying, don't just do something, sit there, you know, which is the opposite of what most people would try and do. So, you know, that's where creativity comes from. So this idea of um, who we are, and uh, Kathy, in her own sweet way, that very first evening, on the 20th of August, 1990, said to me, and I explained to her my, my stress and what it, was, what it seemed to be caused by was this conflict between I wanted to be a good father to Alex, who was then one year old, didn't have a particularly close relationship with my own father, so didn't feel I had a role model, no older brothers, no other male role models around really. Um, so I was concerned to be a good dad. And then on the other hand, my work as a consultant, you know, for working for organizations, wanting to do that well and finding a particular situation where these two seemed to be pulling me in opposite directions. It's Alex's first birthday. Um, we were supposed to have a birthday party for him in Cambridge, and it turned out it was the only day a client could make a key meeting out in Holland. And I literally remember feeling like I was ripped into half, you know, ripped in half, because Jeff the dad wants to be in Cambridge at the party, and Jeff the consultant wants to be with the clients in, in Holland. Very, very difficult thing to resolve, and yet it doesn't take much thinking to find a way that you can actually do both. Um, give me a suggestion. How could I do both? How could I be at his birthday party and go to the meeting? I didn't have Skype in those days. Talking about 1990. <laughs> Take everybody over to Holland for the birthday party. Yeah, except there's 25 people and they're all scattered over and coming into Holland. So You were going to say that, weren't you? Absolutely. He's one year old. He's not going to be saying, well, hang on, this is the 15th. Why aren't we, you know... No? Now, why can't I think of that? You know, I'm bright. People hire me for helping them think, think, think through problems. How come I can't fix that problem for myself? Or to try to, at least, yeah, to try to. There's something in the news in the last few days, wasn't there, about encouraging people to take more risks in education so that kids don't grow up being in this kind of shuttered kind of... Yeah, but it doesn't necessarily always work. I did some consulting work years ago for Shell. Um, and you may remember that they had this big problem called the Piper Alpha disaster in the North Sea, where a, a, a gas rig, a gas production rig, blew up and killed a load of um, employees. And a lot of them got killed, not because of the original explosion, although that took out a lot of the senior people, but the fact that it took out the senior people meant there was nobody around who was authorised to take the decision to shut off the gas to the other rig where loads of other people were dying. And they put that in place purely for health and safety reasons. They didn't want people spuriously stopping production and so no so doing things with laws and rules doesn't always work out you know you have to actually help people to come to the place for themselves where they're well informed enough to make informed decisions um, but you know we live in a, a a time where the legal profession is you know yeah yeah people are creative though you know and it's it's sort of trying to trying to avoid people doing things wrong invariably results in them doing things wrong in a way that nobody ever thought of before the rules were put in place. But I'm not to say that you, that you don't need rules. But this issue of moving the birthday party, the reason I can't think of that is because I'm in the middle of the mess. You know, I'm under the stress. I, I'm actually the one who's feeling this kind of being ripped in half. And it's like when that happens, you, 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 you sort of lose access to your full faculties yeah, it's only like when you're calm that you can really access that. When you're stressed, you, you, you lose that. Um, it, it's just, I mean, it's there, but it, it's kind of gone, gone offline, so you can't access it. 
So, um, well, this is, the, this is the other thing my wife said to me. She said to me, go for the, you know, I said, what do you think I should do? She said, go for the meeting. I said, well, why is that the right answer? And she said, because Alex won't even notice you're not there. Um, but to me, that was like somebody taking a red-hot stiletto, you know, and stuff it in there, and, you know, because inside me, I wanted to be a good dad. And I'd kind of coupled up being a good dad meant being there at his birthday party. No? So we get ourselves into these situations where we get stressed and we get anxious and we get you know, caught up in these, in these negative emotions. And for some of us, it's such a, a constant thing that we almost lose sight of the fact that we're under such internally generated stress and pressure. Um, was it Thoreau said something about the mass of men lead lives of quiet desperation? You know, this idea that there's this sort of quiet desperation going on, but, but it never gets bad enough for you to do something about it. And I guess in a way, well, not in a way, I think definitely I feel very fortunate that for me it got bad enough that I had to go and look for something and happened to stumble across this thing. Uh, and when I was explaining this to Kathy, this conflict between Jeff the dad and Jeff the consultant, she said, she wasn't very experienced as a teacher, by the way, I was her first student. I think I was also her last student because after she got me, she decided that she didn't really want to do any more, any more teaching. But she said, um, she said, oh, that's easy, she said. She said, your problem is you don't know who you are. Sorry, excuse me, I'm, I do know who I am. Thank you very much. She said, no, no, you think you're the roles. You think that you're the dad. You think that you're the consultant. Whereas actually you're the actor playing both those roles. And I don't know for you, but that for me was like a one kilowatt light bulb going on because inside us we know that we're one person we know that we're not you know in this case two different people but you know you could be a, a, a son so you know son to your parents a husband to your wife a father to your own kids um, you know your, your job your friends I mean there's so many ways in which we can put on these different hats of the different roles that we play we know that there's only one of us in the middle of all of that and that really intrigued me because once I'd seen that, once I'd had that realization, it was like half of my stress evaporated in that moment. The very thing that the senior guy at the hospital couldn't do was done by this temporary secretary who'd been coming to the center for two years because she had an insight that he didn't, which is you are not the roles that you play. And that became the impetus for exploring further and, and getting deeper into this. So, you know, these days, it doesn't feel at all like I take risks. These days, it feels much more like I just do what I think is right. And I try and do it in a way, I, don't do it, I, I try not to do it in a way that is deliberately challenging and in the face of other people. But at the end of the day, I have to be who I am. And I spent so much of my life not being that. I spent so much of my life being what I thought other people thought I should be or what other people would, would respect me for being. Um, you know, when you're clever, you tend to want to reinforce your cleverness by knowing lots of stuff. So I, even though I wasn't interested in football, I'd keep up to date with it so that if any of my friends were interested in football, I could know more about their team than they did themselves because I thought that would be what would make them think I was a good guy. Um, and I once had some feedback from a colleague at work my performance appraisal and I remember it very clearly because he said I like working with Jeff he's an interesting guy he's always got an interesting quote or a story to tell but sometimes I just think what does Jeff really think and I'm like well, I don't know <laughs> I don't know what Jeff really thinks and it took me quite a long time to confront that I confronted that 
really with a little exercise, which I'm going to suggest that we, that we try in a moment, very simple thing, uh, that I learnt in the headquarters of the Brahma Kumaris in Mount Abu, where there are, there's two campuses. There's the original campus that has grown um, by bits and things being added on since the 1950s. And then in 93, they opened a brand new campus, completely purpose-built, um, accommodation for two and a half thousand, lecture theatres, all this kind of thing. And I was involved in the very first training that took place when that place came online in 93. And this little exercise was one that I really found, on the one hand, extremely enlightening, but on the other hand, a little bit scary because of what came out of it. Uh, what came out of it was this insight that I need to be myself. And once that comes out and you realize that this is so important to you, that you have to be yourself, and that then you start to think, well, how am I going to do that? No. How am I going to be myself? How do you, how do you find out? You know, if, if your thinking has got in the way of you being yourself, how are you going to find out who this self is? I mean, in a practical sense. I don't just mean as a piece of information, but, but for you as an individual. And so we did this little exercise. And um, I suggest we do it now, actually. We've got a little bit of music for us. Jeremy, something. Not that Led Zeppelin that you played last time I was here. But. So the, the music is really just to kind of help cultivate a more reflective state of mind. So we just sit comfortably and we're just going to so this is a very short little exploration. And just one thing I want to say about it as we begin this exercise. And that is that I'm going to ask you in a moment to think about someone, someone specific. Specific in the sense that they have had a particular impact or influence on your life in and maybe in a small way but it'll become clear in a moment but the reason I'm giving you this intro is you need to be attentive to catch the first person that comes to mind because inside ourselves we also have a lot of processes going on which are trying to make us conform and make us comply with what we think is appropriate and I want you to try and catch the person that comes to your mind before that sort of sanitized, censored version comes in your mind. So just relax and take a couple of breaths. And I want you just to look back over your life and see if anybody stands out as someone that you admire. Someone who exhibits a certain quality. That touches you in some way. can be a real person that you've met, can be a real person that you've not met, someone you've seen on TV maybe, or someone you've read about in a book. They don't even have to be a real person, 
just be a character from a story or a film. But what this person has is a certain quality that you feel attracted to, quality that you admire. quality that you feel that you would like to be more like. Just see if someone comes to mind. that this person appear, appears in this way as you look back over your life is they are exhibiting some quality or some attribute some character trait that you see in them and that you admire you would like to be more like yourself And what's going on when that happens is, although you attribute that quality to them, you're actually experiencing it inside yourself. So actually that quality does exist inside you. It's how you're able to experience it. It's as though you need to think of that person in order to trigger that experience. And the reason this is important is they wouldn't stand out if that wasn't a quality that's important to you. But the reason you attribute it to them is because it's a quality that you're not yet as in touch with inside your own self. And this becomes a really good clue as to a direction in which to work on yourself. It might feel a little bit risky, but what quality is it that they exhibit that you could experiment with bringing more into your own actions and interactions. And as you do that, the confirmation will be that you feel more happy, fulfilled and contented. I did this exercise I was really grateful back in 93 I was really grateful for that forewarning that be careful of the internal sensor 
because the person who sprung to mind first of all was Freddie Mercury who was the lead singer of the band Queen and very shortly after Freddie appeared in front of me Mother Teresa came and pushed him off the stage which is what I mean by that kind of internal sensor is that here you are at the headquarters of a spiritual university and everyone's floating around in their white saris and white Punjabis and you know there's a certain sort of image in the mind of what is a spiritual person like and so I was hoping that I would get a spiritual person come into my mind as someone who was a hero, someone who I admired so when Freddie Mercury turns up there's something inside that says no, no, that's not appropriate you know, he's, you know he just recently died of AIDS and you know, didn't seem like a particularly spiritual person but the question then was what was the quality what was the quality that I saw in him that was important to me that, that when I saw him that quality resonated inside me and we had a little bit of time to go and walk and reflect and lovely gardens and beautiful sunshine and everything and I remember wandering around suddenly it hit me that the thing that I really admired about him was that he was being himself you know he wasn't copying somebody who'd gone before him he had his own way of dressing his own way of singing his own way of prancing around with that silly sawn off mic stand and all of that stuff um, and actually it was many years later that I saw an auto, an, a, a biography a biographical film of him where he, he literally said this that he was just always just being himself and so what does that mean well what that means is that that quality of being yourself for me is important but I'm admiring him because he's doing it and I'm not. And then it hit me. That was when this comment from my colleague Ray Edgerton came into my mind about, I'd like to know what Jeff thinks. What do I think? What would you like me to think? What would impress you if I said that that was what I think? And I began to realize just how much I'd conditioned myself and I'm being conditioned by my surroundings, my education, my family, my culture, to operate like that and it took time to develop this ability to be myself much more and it was a step-by-step -step thing it was like the small child learning to walk find little situations where you start to feel yes I know what I think here now can I actually say it? it feels risky because it may not be what the other person wants to hear can I say it in a skillful way where I'm not watering down the message but at the same time I'm being respectful of the fact that they might not like what I have to say how can, I do, how can I become more skillful at that? But because it had been so clearly revealed to me that this was really important for me, it gave me a very practical starting point for moving forward on my journey. And, um, you know, we all have a different starting point. Some aspects of ourselves are already pretty well developed and other aspects are not. Yeah? Um, I'll, I'll, I'll finish there because I know we have the process that we use here, but there's one story that came to my mind about this, about you have to start where you are and uh, it's this guy is on holiday in Ireland and I apologise in advance to anyone Irish in the audience because my, my, I've worked for about a year with a client in Dublin and he told me if I ever tried to do an Irish accent again he would cancel the contract so this guy is travelling through Ireland and he's a bit lost and he stops to ask directions and he says to this farmer who comes over to his car, he says to the farmer, he says, um, excuse me, could you tell me the way to Killarney? And the farmer looks at him and says, ah, if it's Killarney that you'd be wanting, you shouldn't be starting from here. Right? But the reality is we all start from where we are. 
somebody else may be able to point the direction, but we all start from where we are. And I think that the most important risk for us all to take is that risk to be a bit more who we really are, and that the clue for that comes from who do we admire, and what is it that they're being that we would like to be more like. So, is that okay for, the, for part one? So thank you, Jeff. So we're just going to silence you for, for a few minutes so that people can have a chance to digest, have a chance to share uh, their own kind of reactions to that. And, um, and in small groups, it's nice to do that. And uh, then, uh, then you can create some questions for Jeff to, to answer. So he's given you tons of stuff there, tons of stuff. Very good. Okay, so we just suggest you get in groups of three. I think three is a nice number. Then you all get a chance to share. So the first question is, if I find meditation difficult, how do I develop the qualities I admire and want to aspire to? So I think there's two things together there. I mean, the, the finding meditation difficult is, I think, par for the course. You know, we... Some people are really good at it straight off. Sometimes that lasts, some, quite often it doesn't. Um, so it's about developing the muscles, and there are some tricks of the trade for doing that. But this piece about the, the, the people that you admire and the qualities, those are things that you don't need to particularly meditate to be able to bring into your action and interaction. In fact, I said that there's lots of different yogas in India. One of the yogas that's well-known is karma yoga. Now, sometimes people think that means doing the vacuum cleaning at the local meditation center. But it's literally yoga in action. And so as you're connecting with that quality inside yourself, bringing it into your actions and interactions, then you are developing it. So it, it is like a walking, living meditation. You don't have to be able to sit and concentrate in a powerful way to be able to do that. Make sense? It's a good discipline for me, actually, so I don't end up giving a half-hour answer. Yeah, it's good. Yeah, it's a good discipline for you. So the so the the next one is uh, a nice one actually. If you admire someone else and try to be like them, how can you be yourself? What a great question! So here's the the, the logic that I'm going through with this: is you admire somebody else because they exhibit a quality that matters to you, otherwise you wouldn't admire it, but that you're not yet in touch with in yourself to a significant enough degree, because if you were, then you wouldn't admire them for it. It would just be that you know, you'd see it in everybody. Right? So the purpose here is admiring the quality in them by, by recognizing which quality it is and how it resonates inside you. That gives you the clue to the quality that you bring more into your action and interaction. So you develop that muscle. And what you'll notice is two things. One is you realize that they're not so unique in the fact that they exhibit that quality because you're beginning to exhibit it. And secondly, you feel more happy, fulfilled, and contented because what you're doing is you're being more who, who you really are. Make sense? So, uh, <laughs> if so there's the, any difficult ones, I'm going to hand them back to you. So the, the next one is, uh, one of the biggest obstacles of taking risks is fear of failure. Hmm. How do you deal with that? I think you have to look at... Um, I mean, it's, it's, it's something that happens, isn't it? It's a, it's a feeling that comes up, fear. Right, um, and I think you have to somehow reposition that that feeling, recognise that it's a signal that's telling you that you're stepping outside of your comfort zone, but that the ability to do anything new generally me generally requires you to become more comfortable with failure. 
most of us hear the word failure and we think it's really, really bad. The innovators of the world treat failure as an old friend. Edwin Land, who invented the Polaroid instant camera, he, his daughter said to him, Daddy, why can't we have the pictures straight away? You know, you used to have to take your film in and send it off to the processing lab and one day my prints will come, you know, wait for weeks for them to come back to you. And, and so his daughter said, why can't we have the picture straight away? And because he was a chemist working in Kodak, he said, that's a really good question. And so they did a lot of things that developed the ability to make the, um, the, the emulsion on the film really responsive to light until it was fixed, and then it would be really, you know, it wouldn't change over time because there's no point putting a picture on the wall and having it fade. And what he said was, by the time they'd done about the third impossible thing, they began to believe that they could do anything. And he had always had this attitude towards failure, and he, and he described it as this. He said, when you think you have failed, all you have done is achieved an outcome, the full benefit of which you get to realize. And if we all approached our failures in that way, oh, look, I've got an outcome that I didn't expect. There's an opportunity to learn here. If we thought of failure as an outcome we didn't expect and therefore an opportunity to learn and grow, we would have a very different relationship with it. And then we don't have the fear. What happens is we become curious and say, oh, what's, what's the message behind this failure? Does that make sense? So it's actually a bit of a journey, but to stop having this terrible, visceral kind of, oh my God, I screwed up big time here, and actually replacing that with, well, that's really interesting. Why, why did that happen? I'm really curious about that and cultivate the curiosity to understand why. Yeah, when you think you've failed, all you have done is achieved an outcome, the full benefit of which you have yet to realize. Okay, so this question, this question says, if you go out on a limb to be yourself, how do you avoid isolation, you know, from the crowd? How yeah, do you yeah. cope with that? So um, I'm just sort of having a bit of dissonance with this going out on a limb because I think actually being yourself is actually stepping into your true strength. You know, you'll never be more powerful, more effective than when you're being yourself. I mean, it's just that, you know, that's what you are. So why would you ever be more powerful being something that you're not? So the idea of going out on a limb to me is something that I'm kind of having a bit of an internal kind of struggle with. I mean, I think probably that's part of the answer is shift from seeing it as going out on a limb and shift it, and shift it to seeing deeply rooted and grounded in your foundation would be the first piece of that. What was the second bit of it? How, how do you avoid isolation? I think that what happens is that when you are being more who you really are, more people like you. The thing that is when, when you're being what certain other people want you to be, that will be fine for them, but there'll be other people who don't like you when you're being that. And that's why sometimes we kind of don't know who we are because we want to be like that with those people, but like something else with these people and like something else with these people. When you're being who you are, it's not threatening to anybody else, except that it encourages them to be more who they are. And if you're doing it in a way which is compassionate and caring and loving, you know, they're not trying to ram it down someone's face because they're not as spiritually advanced as you are, ho, 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 um, then uh, they, won't, they won't respond in that way. Sorry. Next question is, how do you learn to trust yourself and your abilities? So this is connected with what you're just saying. Yeah. How yeah. do you learn to trust that it's authenticity it's like that with you're anything creating. else you know trust is something that builds up over time you know you don't trust a new person that you met for the first time just like that you know it, it's through repeated action and so with yourself what happens is the americans have this wonderful wonderful expression don't bet the farm 
you know, don't bet the farm. Don't, basically, if you're going to push the boundaries and things, don't kind of, if you're suddenly going to be more honest, if you, like in my case, be more true to myself, say what I really feel. Before I've actually really understood what that is, you could start just saying whatever comes into your mind, you know? And that can tend to be pretty, pretty counterproductive. So, so the, the thing is, push the boundaries a little bit. You know, find a, a situation, a relationship that matters to you where you feel you're not being as honest as you might be, and try and be a little bit more. You know, don't suddenly blurt everything out. That will be a huge change for other people, and they won't kind of feel comfortable with that. So, and as you do that, you start to feel, oh, hang on, you know, that wasn't really motivated by what I thought it was. I was actually really trying to have a go at that person. But you only learn that that was your motivation by actually doing it and seeing it go wrong. And then that gives you more resolve to say, okay, well, I'm going to check the reason that I'm saying what I'm saying. Is it coming, I feel it is coming from that authentic place. It comes from that, it's great. If it's still not coming from that place, what you're doing is you're increasing your, the, the technical word is acuity, but your ability to see what your real motives are. And this is a part of the refining of the intellect, a part of the refining of consciousness, is you start to see more clearly why you're saying something. You don't um, mislead yourself as much as you used to, and you get better at it. But you don't, you don't get it right from the get-go. You don't sort of suddenly become the expert at it. You make breakthroughs, you have situations where you fall back, habits kick in, all these sorts of things happen. But it's that, it's that small steps leading to developing of the muscles, leading to progressing on your journey. That would be that okay. In dealing with other people, I believe discrimination comes into this a great deal, especially when you want to be accepted or, or be your own person. But when you say discrimination, what do you mean by discrimination? Well, you have to learn how <laughs> you have to learn how to handle it. Yeah. In other words, be a bit careful how you handle it, because if you're going to be thrown out if you're in a group, yeah. do you want to be that isolated, as the lady said over there? Yeah. Yeah. You don't really, do you? You just want to be your own person. Absolutely, and that's kind of really reinforcing what I was trying to say about not betting the farm. You know, push the boundaries a bit. If you think it's important to be more honest with certain people, say, look, you know, like I. I'd like to say something, but I don't want it to cause offence. But what I'm feeling about this is, you know, and if you're on the level, if you're genuine, people will pick that up. And that will strengthen the relationship because relationships are really formed from how much esteem you hold other people in. And you know that you've got friends who you hold in such high esteem. They could say something terribly offensive to you and you just assume that that wasn't really what they meant. Somebody who you don't like, they can give you the perfect engineered answer to something and you still wouldn't trust them. Because it's actually about the relationship. It's not about the content of the conversation. And again, I think this is a left brain thing where we worry far too much about what, what are the words we use rather than what is the actual feeling I have towards the other person. If it's genuinely I'm curious about them, I value them, and I want to understand their point of view because I think it will enrich my own, that's an entirely different way of engaging than thinking, well, you know, we're not, we're not saying the same thing. We can't both be right, and I know I am, so you must be wrong which is the, the trap that many of us fall into. So it, it's about, you know, really is about where am I coming from and what's my real intention. And as we develop the ability to do that, we get it wrong sometimes. So we maybe apologize or we say, look, you know, maybe I came on a bit strong yesterday when I was saying such and such. But again, people appreciate that when you recognize that you got it wrong and now you're wanting to get it right. So just because you've answered some of the other questions anyway in, in your answer to that. So how, what tips would you give? What methods would you give to 
to be able to check or to be monitoring your own intentions. Yeah, because you know, you, you want to be honest and then you blurt it out mm. and in one level you could say you're being honest. So how do you how do you check your own intentions before that happens? You know, you've said some questions yeah. about you know, feel, feeling other people and, 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 and the wording. So how would you do that yeah. practically, do you think? Well I think when you get it wrong then reflecting on what went wrong. Um, is an important part of the learning process. You know, what did I say? What could I have said? We all kind of can reflect back on ourselves and what state we were in when we said something. You know, was I really thinking of this person in this way or was I thinking of it in that way? You know, what was the actuality of, of how we... You know, we, we suffer from many psychological challenges as human beings and one of them is attribution bias. And attribution bias is the reason why when you're driving along and someone's going faster than you, they're a maniac and when someone's driving slower than you, they're a moron. You know, but actually, from their perspective, you know, there's like the guy. The guy's driving slowly because his daughter's wedding cake on the back seat, and his wife's told him that he'll be toast if he doesn't get it there. Um, and the person driving quickly is trying to go and see someone who's been knocked off their bike, and they're in accident and emergency. So, we we generally tend to attribute. The reason it's called attribution bias is we tend to attribute to others negative intentions and to ourselves the best of intentions. But if we sit and reflect on it, we know what we were, what was really going on. And I think the courage to be able to look at ourselves and say, what was I really doing in that situation, is a vital part of the journey. And the only way I think we can do that is when we come to understand and recognize that behind all of the crap, there is actually a beautiful, divine being, a spiritual being created in God's image that is what we all are. And if I can get at least a little glimpse of that and at least a little exposure to that in myself then looking at the mess that I've accumulated that is still kind of hanging around with me is something that I will feel much more comfortable in doing. Otherwise, we'll, we'll just deny it's there and project it on others and blame them. Has that answered the question? Yeah, I think so. Of course, yeah. I mean, there's that wonderful Dire Straits track from 1980-something where he says, when you point your finger because your plan fell through, you've got three more fingers pointing back at you. Yeah? So that's the kind of ratio when you blame somebody else the question is three times more of the responsibility for what's going on is in me it's just we have a wonderful psychological propensity for projecting it out there and then saying why do you do that I hate the way you and these are all mirrors these are all opportunities for us to look at the self and say what is this teaching me you know what has this come to teach me dear friend old friend what have you come to teach me so this one is um, I'll read it but I don't 100% understand it myself but you may get something from it so what roles do your mind intuition and feelings take when you're taking a risk what roles do your mind intuition and feelings take when you're taking a risk and what is the balance you take between these three things the mind intuition and feelings so I suppose the first thing to say is that when someone uses the words mind into in, intuition was it and feelings yeah um, the boundaries between those three things will be different inside each person's perception of what those words mean. Right? So in the mind, we tend to think that there's thoughts. In the intuitions, we tend to think that there's maybe something coming from the subconscious, unconscious, that's suggesting what we should do. And then the feelings are, yeah, you know, kind of sensations that we might experience on a, on a, if not on a physical level, on a subtle physical level. Um, and I think that. The, although the engineer in me is tempted to sort of dissect it and say, 
you know, what, what each of these are doing, they're actually different lenses into the whole of our consciousness. You know, intuitions come from what might be called subconscious or unconscious. Actually, there is only consciousness, but there's consciousness that we're not aware of. The consciousness that we are aware of, we tend to think of as thoughts uh, and as feelings, and then as intuitions, the consciousness that we're not aware of. And all of these things play a part in our outlook on life and in also our insights into what to do next. Um, but, but becoming more attuned to what they're saying, to listening to what they're saying, to take them as a source of input on which we make our decisions is all positive stuff. And over time, I think, as we use these uh, as kind of channels communicating with us, as, as voices coming into our into our sort of subtle ear as to what to do, we learn where they're coming from and what they're motivated by. We learn, are they coming from pure motivation or are they coming from some sort of selfish motivation? And so I would be less concerned about the char characterization into what's coming from the mind, what's coming from the intuition, and what's coming from the feelings, but be more attentive to the whole, I think the Germans would use the word gestalt, you know, the whole stuff that's coming towards me and as I do that, what will happen is I will notice more that I already know. You know th things are coming to me through these channels. And rather than worrying about which is which and which do I give priority to and which order do I do them in, I think it's more important to be open to what are the messages and what do I then do with those messages. Does that make sense? Yeah, they, we were chatting a, a bit earlier about this. And the, and the thing with the ego is that um, a lot of people try and neutralize their ego or take their ego out of the equation and stuff. The only bit of you that wants your ego to go away is your ego. Because it doesn't really want your ego to go away. All it wants to do is to find another way of being in control. And the way I like to think about this is um, your ego is your constant companion. It will be with you always. You will never get rid of it. The only question is what kind of relationship do you have with it. If you try and fight it, it will try and fight you back. But if you have a, a, an affectionate relationship with your ego and you talk to it as though, you know, you, you know it's a friend. It's someone who's helped you on your journey, um, has, has helped you to get where you are today, to, to, to realize where you are and, and uh, where you want to go. Um, and recognize that it will always be with you and therefore it's probably a good thing to have a good relationship with it if it's going to always be with you. The only thing you need to be careful about is if you're going along together, and it's a metaphor of a bus, if you're going along together on the bus, you really need to be in the driving seat and your ego should be a pa in the passenger seat. And I think a lot of the attention that we have on ourselves is just about checking who's driving the bus right now. You know, where am I coming from? What attitude am I bringing? A lot of that is about who's driving the bus. And in India, they have this wonderful bit of mythology, which is uh, one of their big mythological stories is the Ramayana. And uh, the, the kind of two of the central characters are Ram, who is the king-in-waiting, and his brother Lakshman, who is always with him. And the thing about Lakshman is that he, they're both, um, as warriors, they're both bowmen. They both use bow and arrow. But Lakshman is always quick to get his bow and arrow out. And in, in, when you see this in the, um, the, the, the dramatized version, the set of DVDs um, from a, uh, a serialization of this that was done maybe 10 years ago. But what you see is that Lakshman is always ready to shoot his arrow at someone. And his brother, Ram, is always turning to him and saying, Lakshman, calm down. And wait, wait and see. And invariably what happens in the next few scenes of the play 
is that something happens to make Lakshman realize it would have been a big, big mistake to shoot the guy who was coming towards them. In one case, it's their brother. Right? And so I sort of find that imagery is quite powerful because I've always got that little bit of me that wants to defend myself, and the best form of defense is attack. So you're ready to shoot the other person down, even if it's only inside your own head. But if you just do that, Lakshman, calm down. And then what you often find is in the next few moments, you see the thing in a different way, and you're so pleased that you didn't let go. And that means that you, over time, learn that actually it's better not to be shooting other people down, even inside your own mind. And you know, you see, because you, you've seen the consequences of it. And I think this is so important in, in anything on a spiritual journey is once you see the benefits for yourself, you will choose for yourself to continue to behave in the new way you've discovered. If somebody else tells you to do it, you may or you may not. And my only thing, you know, only purpose of me being here today is to encourage you to try some of this out. Because if it works for you, then that's great. And if you didn't know you had the option, then now you do. And now you have more freedom and you have more tools in your toolbox and arrows in your quiver than you had otherwise. Okay, so now we're going to go into meditation um, because this is... And, and maybe you can you can give in 60 seconds um, a connection between meditation and this whole concept that you've been speaking about this afternoon. 60 seconds. Starting from now. Starting from now. I'm going to do... Einstein said if he had 60 seconds to do something that would um, save his life. You've got spend, 25 now. He'd spend, he'd spend 55 thinking about the, uh, the question and then five for the answer. I, I think really the meditation is simply about discovering who you are. And when you discover who you are, a lot of this stuff that I've been talking about this afternoon is natural. What I've been talking about this afternoon is a very fruitful path to discovering who you are. Two go hand in hand. 